truth is stranger than fiction. And this is the truth. This is Ripley's. Believe it or not. Bakht Singha, ruler of Marwar, India, was killed by his vanity. He couldn't resist trying on a robe sent to him by an enemy. The robe had been dipped in poison, and Bakht died. Believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you about the father of 100 crippled daughters. Kusinaba, who ruled over a great Hindu kingdom, was the father of 100 daughters, all of them hunchbacks. To commemorate his great family tragedy, the king founded a city and named it Kanyu Kajba, the city of the deformed maidens. And there he resided for many years. The capital founded by the tragic king has survived to the present day. It's now the principal city of the district of Farukhabad, India, its name having been reduced to the modern Kanyuaj. Believe it or not. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Tit Radio 11.1. This is a special after show episode. Today I have an audio interview with Richard Stallman before his talk at the Edinburgh University Informatics Colloquium, with particular focus on ethics in the field of software. Also some funny haha clips from last night's show. Sit back enjoy, and I will talk to you at the end of this kick-ass show. Put it on in the media. I wanted to ask you if it's okay for the community radio stations to take it, and they might rebroadcast it in a variety of formats. It's okay for them to rebroadcast it in formats that can be played by free software. I do not want it to be transmitted in real player format mm-hmm. or in some Microsoft-only format. It would be contradictory. Okay for you to make it available as a transcript and in translation? Yes, yes. But when you do that, please put on a note permitting verbatim copying by everybody. A person dis- doesn't devote his whole life to developing a new form of freedom without some pre-existing beliefs that drive him to do so. What drives you to spend so much time on software freedoms? First of all, Growing up in the U.S. in the 1960s, I certainly was exposed to ideas of freedom. And then in the 1970s at MIT, I worked as part of a community of programmers who cooperated and thought about the ethical and social meaning of this cooperation. Then that community died in the early 80s. And... By contrast with that, the world of proprietary software, which most computer users at the time were participating in, was morally sickening. And I decided that I was going to try to create once again a community of cooperation. I realized that 
what I could get out of a life of participation in the competition to subjugate each other, which is what non-free software is, all I could get out of that was money, and I would have a life that I would hate. Do you think that the free software movement or parts of it could or does benefit from collaboration with other social movements? I don't see very much direct benefit to free software itself. On the other hand, we're starting to see some political parties take up the cause of free software because it fits in with ideas of freedom and cooperation that they generally support. So in that sense, we're starting to see a contribution to the ideas of free software from, from other movements. Have you considered that the free software movement is vital to oppositional movements in the world that are against corporate rule, militarism, capitalism, etc.? Well, we're not against capitalism at all. We're against subjugating people who use computers. One particular business practice. There are businesses, both large and small, that distribute free software and contribute to free software. And they're welcome to use it, welcome to sell copies, and we thank them for contributing. However, free software is a movement against domination, not necessarily against corporate domination, but against any domination. The users of software should not be dominated by the developers of the software. Whether those developers be corporations or individuals or universities or what, the user shouldn't be kept divided and helpless. And that's what non-free software does. It keeps the users divided and helpless. Divided because you're forbidden to share copies with anyone else and helpless because you don't get the source code. So you can't even tell what the program does, let alone change it. So there's definitely a relationship. We are working against, against domination by software developers. Many of those software developers are corporations. And some large corporations exert a form of domination through non-free software. Also that free software developers could provide a technical infrastructure for these movements that would be impossible to develop using proprietary software which are too expensive and locked into an ideological model that reflects the interest of the dominant world system like commoditization, exploitation, control and surveillance instead of sharing justice, freedom and democracy. At the moment, I wouldn't go quite so far as to say that non-free software couldn't be usable by opposition movements because many of them are using it. How It's not ethical to use non-free software because, well, at least it's not ethical to use it, uh, to use authorized copies, but it's not a good thing to use any copies. You see, to use authorized copies, you have to agree not to share with other people, and to agree to that is an unethical act in itself which we should reject. And that is the basic reason why I started the free software movement. I wanted to make it easy to reject the unethical act of agreeing to the license of a non-free program. 
If you're using an unauthorized copy, then you haven't agreed to that. You haven't committed that unethical act. But you're still, you're, you're condemned to living underground. And you're still unable to get the source code, so you can't tell for certain what those programs do. And they might, in fact, be carrying out surveillance. And I was told that in Brazil, the use of unauthorized copies was, in fact, used as an excuse to imprison the activists of the landless rural workers movement, which has since switched to free software to escape from this danger. And they indeed couldn't afford the authorized copies of software. So, uh, it's, these things are not lined up directly on a straight line, but there's an increasing parallel between them, an increasing relationship. The business corporation as a social form is very closed. It answers to no one except its shareholders, for example, a small group of people with money, and its eternal bureaucratic organization is about as democratic as a Soviet ministry. Does the increasing involvement of corporations with free software strike you as something to be concerned about? Not directly, because as long as some as long as a program is free software, that means the users are not being dominated by its developers. Whatever, whether those developers be a, a large business, a small business, a few individuals, or whatever, as long as the software is free, they are not dominating people. However, most of the users of free software do not view it in ethical and social terms. There is a very effective and large movement called the open source movement, which is designed specifically to distract the user's attention from these ethical and social issues while talking about our work. And they've been quite successful. There are many people who use our free software, which we develop for the sake of freedom and cooperation, who have never heard the reasons for which we did so. And this makes our community weak. It's, it's like a nation that has freedom, but most of the people have never been taught to value freedom. They're in a vulnerable position because if you say to them, give up your freedom and I'll give you this valuable thing, they might say yes because they never learned why they should say no. You put that together with corporations that might want to uh, take away people's freedom, gradually encroach on freedom, and you have a vulnerability. And what we see is that many of the corporate developers and distributors of free software put, put it in a package together with some non-free user-subjugating software. And so they, they, they say that the user-subjugating software is a bonus, that it enhances the system. And if you haven't learned to value freedom, you won't see any reason to disbelieve them. But this is not a new problem, and it's not limited to large corporations. All of the commercial distributors of the GNU slash Linux system, going back uh, something like seven or eight years, have made a practice of including non-free software in their distributions. And this is something that I have been trying to push against in various ways without much success. But in fact, even the non-commercial 
distributors of the GNU Plus Linux operating system have been including and distributing non-free software. And the sad thing was that of all the many distributions, until recently there was none that I could recommend. Now I know of one that I can recommend. It's called Ututo A. It comes from Argentina. I hope that very soon I will be able to recommend another. Why are the more technically orientated beliefs of the open source movement not enough for you? The open source movement was founded specifically to discard the ethical foundation of the free software movement. The free software movement starts from an ethical judgment that non-free software is antisocial. It's, it's wrong treatment of other people. And I reached this conclusion before I started developing the GNU system. I developed the GNU system specifically to create an alternative to an unethical way of using software. When someone said, says to you, you can have this nice package of software, but only if you first sign a promise you will not share it with anyone else, you are being asked to betray the rest of humanity. And I reached the conclusion in the early 80s that this was evil. But there was no other way to use a modern computer. All the operating systems required exactly such a betrayal before you could get a copy. And that was in order to get an executable binary copy. You couldn't have the source code at all. The executable binary copy is just a series of numbers which even a programmer has trouble making any sense out of. The source code looks sort of like mathematics, and if you've learned how to program, you can read that. But that, that intelligible form, you couldn't get even after you signed this betrayal. All you would get is the nonsensical numbers, which only the computer can understand. So I decided to create an alternative, which meant another operating system, one that would not have these unethical requirements, one that you could get in the form of source code, so that if you desired to learn to program, you could understand it. And you would get it without betraying other people. You'd be free to pass it on to others, free either to give away copies or sell copies. So I began developing the GNU system, which in the early 90s was the bulk of what people erroneously started calling Linux. And so it all exists because of an ethical refusal to go along with an antisocial practice. But this is controversial. In the 90s, as the GNU plus Linux system became popular and got to have some millions of users, many of them were techies with technical blinders on who didn't want to look at things in terms of right and wrong but only in terms of effective or ineffective. So they began telling many other people here is an operating system that's very reliable and is powerful and it's cool and exciting and you can get it cheap. And they didn't mention that this 
allowed you to avoid an unethical betrayal of the rest of society, that it allowed users to avoid being kept divided and helpless. So there were many people who used free software but had never even heard of these ideas. And that included people in business who were committed to an, an amoral approach to their lives. So when somebody proposed the term open source, they seized on that as a way that they could bury these ethical ideas. Now, they have a right to promote their views, but I don't share their views, so I decline ever to do anything under the rubric of, quote, open source, unquote, and I hope that you will too. Given that it helps users to understand the freedoms in free software, then the ambiguous use of the word free in English is clarified. <coughs> What do you think of the use of the name FLOSS, as in free, libre, open source software? There are many people who, for instance, want to study our community or write about our community and want to avoid taking sides between the free software movement and the open source movement. Often they have heard primarily of the open source movement and they think that we all support it. So I point out to them that in fact our community was created by the free software movement. But then they often say that they don't, they're not addressing that, that particular disagreement and they'd like to mention both movements without taking a side. So I recommend the term free slash libre and often so open source software as a way they can mention both movements and give equal weight to both. And they abbreviated FLOSS once they have said what it stands for. So I think that's a, if you don't want to take a side between the two movements, then yes, by all means, use that term. Of course, what I hope you'll do is take the side of the free software movement. Me, always. But not everybody has to, so that term is a legitimate Are you use. happy with the development of a community which has grown out of your vision of a free operating system? And in what ways did it develop differently from the vision you had at the beginning? Well, to a lo by and large, I'm pretty happy with it. But of course, there's some things that I am not happy with, mainly the weakness that so many of the people in the community do not think of it as an issue of freedom, have not learned to value their freedom or even to recognize it. That makes our future survival questionable. It makes us weak. And so when we face various threats, This weakness hampers our, res our response. Our community could be destroyed by software idea patents. It could be destroyed by treacherous computing. It can be destroyed simply by hardware manufacturers' refusal to tell us enough about the, how to use the hardware so that we can't write free software to run the hardware. There are many vulnerabilities that we have over the long term. And while the things we have to do to, uh, to survive these threats is, are, are different, in all cases, the, the more aware we are and the more motivated we are, the easier it will be for us to do whatever it takes. 
So the most fundamental long-term thing we have to do, recognize and then value the freedom that free software gives them so that they will fight for these freedoms the same way people fight for freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, so on. Of course, those freedoms are also greatly threatened in the world today. So what, in your opinion, threatens the growth of a free software at the moment? I have to point out that our goal is not precisely growth. Our goal is to, is to liberate cyberspace. Now, that does mean liberating all the users of computers. We hope that eventually they'll all switch to free software. But we shouldn't take mere success as our goal. That's missing the ultimate point. But if I take this to mean what is holding back the spread of free software, well, partly at this point it's inertia, social inertia. Lots of people have learned to use Windows and they haven't yet learned to use GNU slash Linux. It's no longer very hard to learn to use GNU slash Linux. Five years ago it was hard, now it's not. But still it's It's more than zero. And people who, have, if, you know, if you never learned any computer system, then learning to do slash Linux is, a, is as easy as anything. But if you've already learned Windows, it's easier. It's easier to keep doing what you know. So that's inertia. And there are more people trained in running Windows systems than in running GNU slash Linux systems. So... Anytime you're trying to convince people to change over, you're working against inertia. In addition, we have the problem that hardware manufacturers don't cooperate with us the way they cooperate with, Mac, with Microsoft. So we have that inertia as well. <coughs> And then we have the danger in some countries of software idea patents. I would like everybody reading this to talk to all of, or anyone listening to this, to talk to all of their candidates for the European Parliament and ask, where do you stand on software idea patents? Will you vote to reinstate the Parliament's amendments that were adopted last September and that apparently are being removed by the Council of Ministers? Will you vote to bring back those amendments in the second reading? This is a very concrete question with a yes or no answer. You will often get other kinds of... You, you, will, you may get evasive, question, evasive answers if you ask, do you support or oppose software idea patents? The, the people who wrote the directive claim that it does not authorize software idea patents. They say that this is because the directive says that anything to be patented must have a technical character. But somebody in the European Commission involved with this admitted that that term means exactly what they wanted to mean, Humpty Dumpty style. So, uh, in fact, it's no limitation on anything. So if a candidate says, uh, I support the commission's draft because it won't allow software idea patents, you can point this out. 
and press the question, will you vote for the Parliament's previous amendments? Okay, thanks very much. I'm different from the guys in this town. Chaser. Howdy. First time caller? Yeah. Well, I tried to call once before, uh, back when you guys were at OLF, but um, <clears throat> had problems with Mike on the, on the, uh, on the computer. Actually, it's problems with, sound, with uh, pulse audio and that garbage. Are you a long-time listener? Um, two months. What do you two think months, of it so far? Nothing. We've been around for years. Two months is nothing. <laughs> I didn't say two months, but a few months. Ah, that still doesn't sound like a whole lot to me. How were we numbering when you started listening? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what tape were we on then? Were you actually numbering? <laughs> oh, yeah, we've changed our numbering system twice now. Three Not times? including the missing season. Hey, that season is not missing. It is not there for a reason. <laughs> it'll be released on a. It'll be released on special CD. You know, in the box set. Yeah, in the box set with the liner notes. Yeah, you know, and all the show notes in an eighty-page booklet. <laughs> and you're gonna charge one hundred and twenty bucks a copy or something for it? Hell yeah! Oh yeah. Now, how did you find out Five. about us? Oh, actually, I installed Bash Potter. And one of the links over there pointed to a whole bunch of uh, podcasts, and HBR was one of them. Ah, sweet. Five dollars of that money will go to the maintenance of my Jufro. Woohoo! No toothpicks in it, I hope. (laughs) No. I still hate my cousin. (laughs) TJ, you may end up with toothpicks in your Jufro, but at least you don't have the clapper kids. That's true. Now I'm having withdrawal from Hash Linux cranks. That's not called so withdrawal, that's called recovery. So cold. See, you could go into a Hash Computer Action Show. Or you could try a I mean, Hash Linux Outlaw. <laughs> yeah. Now, wait a second. That one's not so bad. It's not so bad. I tend no, to wait like until I've run almost out of podcasts before I listen to them. <laughs> so then I end up like six or seven of them right in a row, and then I can't stand them for another, like, two months. I only listen to one podcast, and that's The Bad Apples. That was the right answer. You know, The Bad Apples has been a boon in my life. Because the first time he mentioned me on that show, the transmission in my scooter exploded. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, It's true. I'm riding to work, listening to The Bad Apples, it was right after Cranks had started. Had to have been. Klaatu mentions me, and I'm like, holy shit, he just said my nick. Boom! An explosion happened between my legs. 
I almost had to push yeah. that bastard to work. It was like the next day. I just came over. I was like, hey, you want to go get some pop and all that? He's like, yeah, we got to walk. I was like, why? We'll have to do the scooter. Then he told me the entire story. <laughs> Boom! An explosion happened between my legs. Are you two a couple? Yes. <laughs> a couple of what? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're gay, but independently. <laughs> that's, that's what we wanted to know. Now, have you two ever done it? Do we ever experiment? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, if you mean snoodle, yes. Um, I'll just start write this for intro for um, pranks for us. I'll, play, I'll just have to play it over the speakers and so you can hear it. Okay, Stage, you ready? This is your debut album. That's if Genome doesn't crash. Here it comes. Oh, you just... Hey, see that? You just hold it over and it starts playing. Can you hear that? Yeah. yeah. That's amazing. This Genome's great. Okay, hold on. <laughs> uh, Peter, I've used the entire time I've used Linux did that. Oh, okay. Right on. Not that good then. Right on, here we go. When is it finished laughing at me? <laughs> Pretty catchy. I like that. Sounds like porn music. Yeah, I was just gonna say that. That's what I was thinking from the seventies. Totally perfect for Linux crank. Crank. <laughs> Thanks, Naz. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that is pretty cool. That sounds really. We know there's something. Of, anything that gets me toe tapping's got to be all right. I reckon. <laughs> toe tapping. I <laughs> took my pants off on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I would have, but I wasn't wearing any the whole time. Hope you enjoyed this kick-ass show. Please send feedback to feedback at titradio.info and check out the show notes at titradio.info. My name is BSD Betty, and another it is in the can. Good night. Thank you for listening to Hack Republic Radio. HPR is sponsored by caro.net, so head on over to caro.net for all your hosting needs.